Whatever we do, we are to do to his glory. We said that, first of all, we do that by confessing Jesus as Lord. Philippians 2, we confess Jesus as Lord to the glory of God. Secondly, we do that by aiming our life at that purpose. Whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do it all to the glory of God. And that means uh, content to do his will at any cost, preferring his will above everything else, uh, suffering when he is dishonored, and being con uh, content to be outdone by others who do what we do with more blessing. So we're talking then about glorifying God. Now, I want to get into another very, very important means by which we glorify God. I don't want to take any more time for review because there's so much on my heart to share with you this morning. We said, first of all, we glorify God by confessing Jesus as Lord. That is by salvation, by coming to Christ and committing our life to him. Secondly, by aiming everything in our life at that purpose. That's positive. Coming to Christ is positive. Aiming our life at the glory of God is positive. I want to talk about a negative. We glorify God by confessing sin. We glorify God by confessing sin. For example, the thief on the cross, you remember, uh, was hanging there, the, uh, the, the death of Jesus Christ, of course, being the central issue, but there were two criminals crucified, one on each side of him. And one thief uh, was sort of deriding Christ, sort of mocking Christ, you know, if you're the Son of God, why don't you uh, deliver yourself in, in a mocking tone. The other thief, who had spent his whole life dishonoring God, who had lived as a criminal, in the very end, you remember, Jesus said to him, Today you'll be with me in paradise. And one of the keys to that was that according to Luke 23, I think it's verse 41, that thief said to the other thief, We indeed suffer justly. That was a tremendous open confession that what was happening to that man was exactly what he deserved. We indeed suffer justly, but this man hasn't done anything. This is unjust in the case of Christ, this execution. It is just in our case. That glorified God. You say, how does that, how does that glorify God? Well, let's turn to Joshua 7, and I'll show you how this works. It's very, very important and a substantially basic principle in Christian living. Joshua chapter 7. Anytime a person makes excuse for their sin, that impugns the character of God. And I'll show you why. On the other hand, any time a person confesses sin, that honors God. And here is the classic illustration of that. Joshua chapter 7, you, you know the story very well. Uh, the children of Israel had uh, come to the land of promise. They had had a tremendous victory at Jericho. The walls came down. The city was theirs. They captured the city. And they, they were instructed not to take any spoil. God didn't want them having any of the elements of pagan religion or society. He didn't want any commingling of idolatry. And so he said, don't take anything. Well, you know the story. They were to burn everything up, but uh, that's not what a man named Achan did. Achan stole some things that he wasn't to steal, kept some things he wasn't to keep, and brought them back and buried them in his tent, thinking, I guess, that God can't see through dirt or canvas or hide or whatever that tent was made of. And in verse 19, Joshua confronts him, just to kind of squeeze ourselves right down to the main issue. Joshua confronts Achan, and he says to Achan, My son, I implore you, or I beg you, Give glory to the Lord, the God of Israel. 
Now, that's understandable. Give glory to God. But how? Give praise to him. And here's how. Tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. He's saying to Achan, you need to glorify God by confessing what you've done openly. So, verse 20, Achan answered Joshua and said, truly, I have sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel, and this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful mantle from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold, 50 shekels in weight, a small fortune, by the way, then I coveted them and took them, and behold, they are concealed in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath it. He gets real specific. He confessed specifically exactly what he had done. And in so doing, he gave glory to God. How? Keep reading. So Joshua sent messengers, and they ran to the tent. Behold, it was concealed in his tent with the silver underneath it. And they took them from inside the tent and brought them to Joshua and to all the sons of Israel, and they poured them out before the Lord. So they come right in the presence of Joshua and the presence of God as he's gathered with his people. They bring all this stuff the guy had stolen, and they dump it right out where it can be seen. Then Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan the son of Zerah, the silver, the mantle, the bar of gold, get this, his sons, his daughters, his oxen, his donkeys, his sheep, his tent, and all that belonged to him, and they brought them to the valley of Achor. By the way, that means trouble in Hebrew. And Joshua does a little play on words and says, why have you troubled us? And do you know what happened because Achan had disobeyed? What happened? Well, the second city that the children of Israel went to conquer was a city named Ai, and they were defeated there. So the implications of his sin touched the whole community. Sin is never isolated. It always has ramifications for lots of people, and it certainly did in this case. You have troubled all of Israel. Verse 25, the Lord will trouble you this day, and is all Israel stoned the whole group with stones, burned them with fire after they had stoned them with stones. And they raised over him a great heap of stones that stands to this day. And the Lord turned from the fierceness of his anger. Therefore, the name of that place has been called the Valley of Trouble to this day. Now, that's kind of a strange response in one sense. And what makes it seem like a strange response is that the man and all of his family were killed after they had done what? confess their sin. You would think that if you come clean, you know, you sort of escape. Not so. Not so. If, uh, in a simple sense, if every time my children were confronted with sin, they confessed it and thereby escaped the discipline, I would have a bunch of undisciplined children who figured out the formula. Confession never eliminates judgment. It never eliminates chastening. Listen carefully to what I'm going to say. What confession does is justify chastening. Somebody is going to stand there and they're going to read that story and they're going to say, what in the world kind of God is this God? I mean, here's a guy who in the impulse of the moment took all this stuff, disobeying God, buried it in his tent. And by the way, his whole family was in complicity with the deal. That's why his sons and daughters and his family were also stoned and burned with fire because they were in on the deal. You can't be digging a hole in your tent without everybody knowing it. 
and you can't be hauling that much junk alone. So they, they must have been involved in the whole enterprise. And God says, I'm going to wipe out your whole family. Well, if God had just stepped in and wiped out that whole family, somebody might say, you know, that, that kind of God is not worth, worth, worth uh, worshiping. That, that kind of God is, is uh, overbearing and uh, uh, unkind and lacks uh, compassion. I mean, what in the world kind of God is going to just burn up a whole family after they've been stoned to death and everything they possess? I'll tell you what kind of God. A holy God. And the point to learn from this passage is this. When you confess your sin openly and publicly, and God, in response to that sin, chastens you, nobody can question the justice of God. What it does is exalt God as a God of holiness and a God of justice. If the sin was denied, if Achan said, I didn't do it, I didn't do it, somebody else did it, I don't know, some guy down a few tents took it and put it in my tent, I don't know why he, he didn't want to hide it, and it wasn't me, it wasn't me, and then God strikes him dead, people are going to say, well, I don't know whether God is a just God or not. This is a very compelling point. God wants us to confess our sins so that when he chastens us, he cannot be accused of being unjust. Did you get that? That preserves God's integrity. God is going to chasten you for your sin. There's no question about that. Whom the Lord loves, he what? He chastens. Every son he scourges, Hebrews 12 says. He is going to chasten you for your sin. Just like any good parent, that chastening for a time seems grievous, but it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. In the end. So you're going to be chastened, just like a good parent is going to discipline a child, even if he confesses that he has committed a sin and a violation of his parents' will. But the point is, when you confess your sin and God chastens you, God is free from any accusation. You cannot say that God is unfair. You've just admitted you deserve it. Sometimes I think that we assume the only reason to confess sin is so we can escape judgment. That's not it. The reason to confess sin is to glorify God so that when he brings chastening, we know that it is deserved and it is his holy justice that is acting. response to being confronted by God about his sin was the woman, the woman, listen to this one, you gave me. Now, who was Adam blaming? Not the woman. The woman, you gave me. Look, I went to sleep single. I woke up married. I had nothing to do with it. What do I know? I roll over and there's a woman there. Not only did I not make that woman or make that choice, I didn't pick that specific one. You made her. It was your choice to make a woman. And it was your choice to make that woman. And it's not my fault. It's the woman you gave me. Somebody said God made man, then he rested, then he made woman, and nobody's rested. I wouldn't say a thing like that, but somebody said that. There's a restlessness from one way or another in society because all of us are fallen. But Adam said, God, it's your fault, and he blamed God. That doesn't glorify God. It doesn't glorify God when you blame God for your sin. That is one, I believe, of the most serious blasphemies of God in our culture today. The idea that you are not responsible for your own sin. That somehow you're not responsible for your own iniquity. Somebody else is. 
Ultimately, uh, I didn't choose my parents. I was abused. I couldn't help it. It wasn't my choice. God, you're the one that put me in that family. You're the one that allowed those circumstances. That is a blasphemy of God because it fails to recognize that the sinner's sin is the sinner's fault. And when God chastens that sin, he is acting in a holy fashion. He is acting in a just way. He is acting consistent with who he is. And so when we confess our sin, we glorify God because we clear his name from any responsibility for sin and we exalt him for having a holy reaction against it. Now, I want to show you another passage about this. First Samuel chapter five. This is a great story, and I mentioned it a few weeks ago in church, but I, I want to come at it another way. In 1 Samuel chapter five, the children of Israel were fighting against the Philistines and the Philistines won the battle and stole the Ark of the Covenant. Now, the Ark of the Covenant represented God. And uh, so they, when they conquered Israel and massacred many of the Jews and the, the sons of the high priest died, I mean, it was a, just a terrible thing that was going on uh, as they were defeated by the Philistines. Ichabod was declared, the glory has departed from Israel. It was a sad moment. So you come to chapter 5, and now the Philistines have stolen this little box called the Ark of the Covenant, which they think is the idol Jehovah. They think this is the God of Israel. They have idols, and this is the Israeli idol, and uh, so they decided to steal it. In other words, pagan, pagan people uh, accumulated gods. They weren't monotheistic, having one god. They were polytheistic, and adding more deities was just, you know, a good thing to do because you just got more more supernatural power on your side. And so they, they took the Ark of God and they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Those are cities in Philistia, the old name for Palestine. Then the Philistines took the Ark of God and brought it to the house of Dagon and set it by Dagon. Now, Dagon uh, is a reverse mermaid. A mermaid is a girl on top and a fish on the bottom. And this is not a girl, this is a man. But it's a man on the bottom and a fish on top. So it's just a reverse Mermaid, and it's who the Philistines worshipped. Now they were a they were a seafaring people living on the coast of the Mediterranean, and they were all about fishing and traveling in boats, and so naturally they would have a deity associated with the sea. And this was their main god called Dagon, uh, a man uh, until the top of his torso went a big, huge fish head. And there are some images of ancient uh, Dagon idols that have been found by archaeologists that indicate this to us. So they take the Ark of God and they stick it in the house of Dagon because, after all, this is just another idol. We'll put it in the temple of Dagon and we'll have two gods. And this is a powerful god because he destroyed all the Egyptians. And uh, so we'd like to have him on our side. When the Ashdodites arose the next morning, Dagon had fallen on his face to the ground before the Ark of the Lord. In the morning, the, 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 the Dagon idol was, was down flat. And they thought there must have been a localized earthquake or something. So they picked him back up. The next day, verse 4, they came back and Dagon was on the ground again and his hands were cut off and his head was cut off. Who did that? God did it. God was fulfilling his statement, I will not give my glory to another. You shall have no other gods beside me. And God wasn't about to tolerate being put in, a, in an idol temple, so he just decapitated and delimbed Dagon. Well, verse 5 says people didn't worship Dagon anymore. I can understand that. He was a loser. And God was so angry, verse 6, this is amazing, the hand of the Lord was heavy on the Ashdodites, and he ravaged them and smote them with tumors. There are a number of different translations of that. Uh, some Bibles translated hemorrhoids. That's a poor translation. Um, it has to do with tumors. He ravaged them and smote them with tumors. 
He ravaged them. What does ravage mean? As we'll see a little bit later, ravage means there was a plague and it was carried by mice. And mice carry deadly plagues like the Black Death in Europe, the bubonic plague. And uh, mice came into the city and started biting people and spreading their disease. And people were dying all over the place from this disease. And the ones that didn't die with the disease from the mice were hit with the tumors in Ashdod and all of its territories. So the men of Ashdod had a committee meeting. And they said in verse 7, The ark of the Lord of Israel, the God of Israel, must not remain with us, for his hand is severe on us and on Dagon our God. Get rid of this box. Will you get this God out of here? And so they sent, uh, gathered all the lords of the Philistines, verse 8, and said to them, what do we do with this thing? And they said, well, let's send it to Gath. Now, Gath is just the next town up the coast in Philistine country. It's the town from which Goliath came. They brought the ark of the, uh, the God of Israel there. And it came about that after they had brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against the city with very great confusion. He smote the men of the city, both young and old, so the tumors broke out on them. So they sent the ark of God to Ekron, and happened the ark of God came to Ekron. The Ekronites cried out, saying, They've brought the ark of the God of Israel around to us to kill us and our people. So it's just going from city to city across the coastline there of Philistia. And as it goes, the plague goes and the tumors go. So they had another meeting in verse 11, and they came to an astute conclusion. Send away the ark of the God of Israel. Get it out of here. Send it back where you got it before it kills everybody. And there was a deadly confusion throughout the city, and the hand of God was heavy there. And the men who did not die were smitten with tumors, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. Either you died with the plague, or you got the tumors. Verse 1 of chapter 6. The ark of the Lord had been in the country of the Philistines for seven months. Seven months of this horrible plague. And the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners, saying, What do we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us how we send it to its place. We want to send it back, but we want to send it back in an appropriate way. Now, here's what they concluded. We have offended this God. They assumed that this box was the God of Israel. This was their idol, just like Dagon was theirs. And so they said, we want to send this thing back, get rid of this idol, but we want to do it appropriately. So how do we do it? Verse 3, if you send away the ark of the God of Israel, don't send it empty. Don't just take it back. You shall surely return to him a guilt offering. Wow. Here are a bunch of pagans who recognize that they have to admit what? That this is their fault. They're not going to say, what kind of a God is this? Or the first time you invite him into your country, he gives everybody tumors. What kind of a God is this who comes in here and, and uh, sends mice all around to bite people and they die or to spread their disease and they die? What kind of a God would do this? They don't take that approach. They're not questioning God. They're not questioning God. They're not saying it's his fault. What they have to admit is we have violated this God and we need to send a guilt offering. Then you shall be healed and it will be known to you why his hand is not removed from you. Here are even pagan people who are accepting full responsibility for a violation of Jehovah God. And they said, what is it going to be? And he said, five golden tumors and five golden mice. Those are called votive offerings where they form the image of the of the tumor, the image of the mice that carries the plague in gold so that and giving it back to the deity. This is their way of saying we understand exactly what it is that you have caused to fall upon us because we have violated you. And then verse five is the key. So you shall make likenesses of your tumors and likenesses of your mice that ravage the land. Here it is. And you shall give glory to the God of Israel. Pagans who understood that they needed to accept full responsibility for their own sin. That glorifies God. Because then when God acts in judgment, when He acts in justice, when He acts in holy wrath, when He acts in chastening, 
no one can accuse him of being unjust. Rather, he is glorified when you say, yes, I deserve it. You are holy, you are just, and you're very fair in bringing that chastening. Nehemiah, in Nehemiah 9.33, said this, Thou art just in all that is brought upon us. We're getting exactly what we deserve, God. After all the terrible, tragic things that occurred in the Babylonian captivity and the return to the land under Nehemiah, we got exactly what we deserved. Remember the story of the prodigal son in Luke 15? He comes running home. And I saw a ridiculous, absolutely ridiculous play performed by a drama group when I was at the Christian Artists Conference in Estes Park this summer. And they did a parody on the, on the prodigal son story. And here's how they ended it. Uh, the, the prodigal son, you know, was cast in a contemporary deal. He went to his father and he said, Hey, man, I want my money. I want my inheritance. I want the cash now. Uh, I'm out of here. And they put it in the contemporary vernacular. And uh, so the father uh, gave the kid exactly what was coming to him, gave him the whole inheritance. He went right down and bought himself a Mazda Miata, red, you know, and uh, got some slick duds, some cool stuff, and, and blew the scene, you know. And this little drama goes on and he goes out there and he wastes a substance like Luke 15 and he blows all his money on women and, and, and song and, and uh, wild living. And he comes to himself one day and says, I'm going to go back. I don't know where in the world they ever concocted this thing. They have the guy coming back. The son says, I think I'm going to go back. I, I'm going to check back with dad and see if he can you know, give me a job around the place. And I'm just thinking about maybe that's what I ought to do. And all of a sudden, some guy walks into the scene and says, uh, uh, he's now moving toward his home. He's in some town near where he's where his home is, and he said, your father's heard you're coming back, and he's anxious to see you. And then the guy says, come to think of it, he's the reason I got in this mess to start with. It's all his fault. And the thing goes black at the end of the play. Somebody thought that that was supposed to be a, a provocative in, in, a, in a Christian environment or, or something. I was so profoundly offended by that. What the, what the prodigal son did when he went back was, Father, I have sinned against God and against you. And he admitted it. And then the father threw his arms around him and he put on a feast and a festival and welcomed him back. Everything bad that happened in that guy's life was his own fault. And whatever God brought into his life to drive him back was just. When you confess your sin... You are honoring God because you're saying God has every right to have a holy reaction. Now, this principle is all throughout the Scripture. Saul said to Samuel, 1 Samuel 15, 24, I have sinned. I have transgressed the command of the Lord. Daniel, uh, David rather said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Daniel, Daniel 9, I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin even Simon Peter, Luke 5, falls down before Jesus and says, Depart from me, I am a sinful man, O Lord. The publican in Luke 18, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. The Apostle Paul, I am the chief of sinners. Whenever you say that, you free God up for His chastening work with no impunity. Why should you confess your sin? So that when God chooses to chasten you, He cannot be accused of being unfair but rather being a gloriously holy and just God who is giving you exactly what you deserve. Let me give you another means by which you can glorify God. We glorify God by trusting Him, and we'll shift gears completely. We glorify God by trusting Him. In Romans chapter 4, and there's so much that could be said about this particular issue, 
But let me just take the illustration of Abraham. In Romans chapter 4, God came to Abraham and said, you're going to have a son. And Abraham said to Sarah, we're going to have a son. And you remember, Sarah, what? Laughed. She says, this is ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous. Um, Abraham was pushing 100 and Sarah was over 90. Absolutely absurd. And in stupidity, not believing God, um, Abraham thought, well, you know, Sarah's barren. There's no way I'm going to get a son from her. And Sarah agreed, but they wanted a son. It was very important in that culture to have a son. Abraham was a very wealthy man and needed to leave his wealth to, to his offspring, namely to his son. They had no children, and so they wanted to help God. So uh, they had this little plan, and there was, a, there was a servant in the house by the name of Hagar. And so uh, they agreed that Abraham would go in and sleep with Hagar, and she would be a sort of a surrogate mother and produce the son that uh, Sarah could never have. And so Abraham, in his folly, did that, and Hagar had a son, and the son's name is Ishmael. Just in case you want to know, Ishmael fathered the Arab world. There hasn't been a Jew since the birth of Ishmael who has been happy with Arab-Israeli relations. They are the most volatile relations on the face of the earth. That sin has reverberations right to the very present time as Arabs and Jews continue to terrorize each other in the Middle East. A foolish thing. But eventually, Abraham got his act together and got things sorted out. And when God reiterated the promise, listen to what Romans 4.19 says. And without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead, that is, unable to produce, since he was about a hundred years old, and he contemplated the deadness of Sarah's womb. Yet, with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief but grew strong in faith, and here's the last line, giving glory to God. Because he was fully assured that what God had promised, verse 21, he was able to perform. You know what? He believed God. He believed God that an impotent 100-year-old man and an impotent 90-year-old woman could have a baby. And that gives God glory. You say, why? Because it affirms that God can do what seems impossible. Believing God gives him glory. In fact, he that believes not, according to 1 John 5.10, makes God a liar. If God says he can do something and you don't think he can, you've made him a liar. That dishonors God. To believe God gives him glory. I love the Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or their Jewish names, Mishael, Azariah, and Hananiah, the names I prefer. And they were in the fiery furnace, you remember, in Daniel. And they're in the fiery furnace, and basically they said, as they were there, they were thrown into this furnace that had been heated seven times hotter. They should have been incinerated. And as they were standing on the edge, about to be thrown in the fire, they said, this does not matter, for our God will deliver us. Remember that? That's tremendous faith. And you say, oh, I have that faith. Well, you're sitting in here, and it's a little warm. It's one thing to have the, that kind of faith while you're sitting in a chapel service in a warm gym. It's something else standing edge, on the edge of a, a ball of fire. They said, this is fine. Our God will deliver us. And the, he cranked the fire even hotter when he heard about that faith. And the guys who threw them in were all incinerated. And they went in there, and there was one like the Son of Man with them. And it was as cool as it could possibly be in an ocean breeze 
on a winter day. And God vindicated their faith. You see, it glorifies God when you trust Him. What does it do to people, for example? If I say, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian. I love the Lord Jesus Christ. He's changed my life. I say that to my family. I say that to my friends. And then I go around as a basket case worrying about everything in my life. Well, what are they going to conclude? What kind of God... Have you got a God who can't be trusted? What kind of a Christian witness is it when you claim to believe in Him, you can't cope with life? You can't cope with the issues of life. You get frustrated. You question what He does. You have fears, doubts, worries. What does that say? That says, I, I, I don't believe in Him. If the Bible says, my God shall supply all your needs according to His riches and glory by Christ Jesus, is that true? Do you worry about your needs? If you do, you don't trust Him. If you don't trust Him, you give evidence that He is a lesser God. He's not worthy of your trust. What kind of testimony is that? What kind of dishonor is that? If I worry about everything in ministry, if I worry about everything going on in my life, if I worry about things in my family or things at the college or wherever it is, all the issues of life, if I have uh, inordinate fears of death or illness or, or relationships, if I, if I am a constantly in distress or anxiety over those things or even intermittently, what does that say about my confidence in my God? My God shall supply all your needs. Take no thought for what you shall eat or what you shall drink or what you shall wear. If God clothes the grass of the field, which is today and gone tomorrow, will He not clothe you, O you of little what? Faith. Can you stand on the edge of the fire and say, it's not, a, it's not an issue, my God will deliver us. And if He doesn't deliver us, that's fine too, He has a better purpose. Faith trusts God. You read Hebrews 11. By faith, this guy. By faith, that guy. By faith, by faith, by faith. And it, it's just an incredible list of the heroes of faith. Let me just remind you. By faith, he says, Time would fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, the prophets, who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight, women received back their dead by resurrection, others were tortured, not accepting their release in order they might obtain a better resurrection, and others experienced mockings and scourgings, yes, chains and imprisonments, they were stoned, sawn in half, tempted, put to death with the sword, they went about in sheepskins, goatskins, destitute, afflicted and ill-treated, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. Why? By faith. It's all right. I trust you perfectly. I trust a sovereign God who never makes mistakes. To believe in God gives Him glory. Nothing is a greater testimony to the glory of God than a believer in the midst of a very difficult situation in total calm. I remember reading about a missionary who was in a ship many years ago when ship travel was somewhat dangerous and a terrible storm threatened to, to sink the ship in the Pacific Ocean. And he was down in the hold of the ship as the terrorizing storm was buffeting the boat and throwing him all around, trying to read his Bible, and he came across the verse in the Old Testament that says, The Lord neither slumbers nor sleeps. And in his little diary, the missionary wrote, As long as you're going to stay awake, I think I'll go to sleep. 
And that's really the bottom line, isn't it? God's awake in the midst of the storm. You can go to sleep. You will give glory to God when you trust Him in everything. And that trust becomes manifest in your calm, your peace, your tranquility. All right, another point. And this, are, this is just a list of practical ways to glorify God. We glorify God by our fruitfulness. By our fruitfulness. And I'll explain what I mean by that. John 15, 8. Jesus uh, giving the teaching here about the vine and the branches. Down in verse 8 says this. By this is my Father glorified. This couldn't be more clear. That you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. You want to know how to glorify God? Bear fruit. That's how you glorify God. That's how you prove that you belong to Him. Nothing, uh, nothing dishonors God more than little fruit. Over in Philippians 1.11 it says, You should be filled with the fruit of righteousness. So what is fruit? I'll just give you a simple definition of fruit. First of all, fruit is action. Fruit is action. Uh, for example, in Romans 1.13, Paul says, I want to come to Rome so I can have some fruit among you. What does he mean? He wants to lead some people to Christ. He talks about believers who were the first fruits of Achaia. Winning someone to Christ is fruit. That's, that's what's produced in your life. Spiritual fruit. In Hebrews chapter 13, it talks about offering God thanks, which is the fruit of our lips. So fruit is leading someone to Christ. Fruit is thanking God. According to uh, Philippians 4:17, he says, um, I seek fruit which increases to your account. And he's talking to the Philippians about the money they gave him. They gave him a gift of money and he said that's fruit to your account. So fruit is giving someone what they need. Fruit is leading someone to Christ. Fruit is having a heart of thanksgiving and expressing that thanks to God. In Colossians 1.10, it says, Bearing fruit in every good work. Every good work you do. Every spiritual work you do. Anything that is edifying or encouraging or instructive. Anything that you do on behalf of someone else is fruit. That's all the fruit of righteousness. Okay? Now, as Christians, we are to have much fruit. Every Christian has some fruit. A lot of Christians have a little bit. You have to look around a long time to find a shriveled grape hanging on the vine, but it's going to be there because every Christian is going to produce some fruit. By their fruits, you know them. God is glorified when we have much fruit, when we lead people to Christ, when our, our lips are filled with thanksgiving, when we are generous in giving people what they need, when we have all those good works that minister to others. Fruit is action. Secondly, fruit is attitude. Fruit is attitude. And that's Galatians 5:22 and 23. That's attitude fruit. And let me tell you what I mean by that. Paul said, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, self-control. That's all attitude. Love is an attitude. Joy is an attitude. Peace is an attitude. Goodness is an attitude. Self-control is an attitude. All those are internal. So listen, fruit is internal and external. Let me put that together. It starts internally and shows up externally. I start out with walking in the Spirit. And whoever walks in the Spirit will have the fruit of the Spirit. If my life is controlled by the Spirit, my life 
Attitudes are going to be love, joy, peace, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, self-control. And out of that attitude fruit, listen carefully, is going to come action fruit. Now, let me say something that I think is important. Action fruit without attitude fruit is legalism. That's what legalism is. It's cranking on the outside with nothing on the inside. That's not what God wants. He wants much fruit produced by the Holy Spirit on the inside that gets to the outside. And we glorify God. When you lead someone to Christ, you glorify God. When you pray for someone, you glorify God. When you do kind deeds for someone, you glorify God. When you pick up someone who's fallen, you glorify God. When you teach someone, proclaim the gospel to someone. When you confront someone about sin, any of those things is fruit. And God is glorified when we bear fruit. Why? Because His Spirit is in us and everything the Spirit produces through us is to the glory of God. All right, let me give you another principle. We glorify God by praising Him. We glorify God by praising Him. In Psalm 50 and verse 23, you can just write that one verse down if you're keeping notes on the passages. Psalm 50, verse 23, here's what it says. Whoever offers praise glorifies me. Whoever offers praise glorifies me. It's not any complicated thing to glorify God. It's not some kind of... A technical thing, it's just offering praise. Whoever offers praise glorifies me. Now, somebody's going to ask the question, what is praise? If I say to you, as First Chronicles 16, 36 said, All right, go ahead and praise the Lord. What are you going to do? Are you going to say, praise the Lord? Praise the Lord. What, what does it mean if I say, praise the Lord? What are you going to do? Basic. Let me tell you what you're going to do. You're going to do three things. This is what the Bible says is praise. Number one, you're going to recite God's works. You're going to recite God's works. You're going to go over the history of what he's done. You're going to praise God by saying, God, you're the great God who one day stepped on the edge of nothing and looked out into nothing and said, I'm going to create. And you spun the whirling worlds into space and you spun the stars into their orbits and you spun the suns and the moons into place and you created the, un, uh, the, the unlimited universe and you're the God who in the middle of that created a theater for redemption and you created the earth and on that earth you put man and in a period of of uh, six days you populated that earth with all that you designed for that earth and, and God, you're the great God who, who put man into a magnificent garden. You're the great God who when man sinned and violated that tremendous trust that you had given to him sought in redemption to bring him back. You're the God who, who did miracle after miracle. You're the God who called your people Israel as uh, the witness nation for the world. You're the God who called them out of Egypt and parted the Red Sea and drowned the Egyptian army. Oh God, you're the God who brought Israel into the land, conquered the enemies and established them there. You're the God who built the great temple to worship you. You're the God of miracles. You're the God who raised the dead and, and gave sight to the blind. You're the God who came into the world incarnate in Jesus Christ. And you can go on and on and on. And that's a tremendously wholesome thing because when you're done with, you know, about 15 minutes of that, then you can say, God, I have a quiz today. Do you think you can ha handle it? Can you give me a little help? I mean, when you understand the greatness of God, the little things in our lives become so small. Reciting God's 
works. I love to do that. That's one of the reasons I study the Old Testament, just to go over the record of what he's done, just to have that record clear in my mind. Read the book of Habakkuk, chapter 3, just a long recitation. Here's Habakkuk. He's in the midst of a horrible dilemma, can't understand anything that's going on, doesn't know why God's going to use the Chaldeans to wipe out the Israelites. After all, the Chaldeans are a wicked, evil people. The Israelites are the chosen people. How can God bring the Chaldeans to, to destroy Israel? I don't understand. It's beyond me. But in chapter 3, he goes down this long list of everything God has done. And when he gets to the very end, he says, I'm going to trust you. I don't care if the whole world goes upside down. I may never understand anything, but I'm going to trust you. And that great statement that is the heart of, of Habakkuk is this statement. The just shall live by faith. I'm going to believe in my God and the history of his redemptive works. So the first thing is to recite God's work. Second thing is to recite God's attributes. Praise involves reciting God's attributes. It's also a reason to know the Old Testament so you can know all there is about God. It's a reason to read the Psalms over and over and over. When somebody comes to me and they're, they're, they're emotionally stre stressed, they're emotionally wiped out, they can't cope with life, the most refreshing thing that I can instruct them to do is to read the Psalms over and over. Why? Because the Psalms give the record of God's deeds and the Psalms list his attributes. And all you need to do is get back in touch with who your God is, and that's praise. Praise him for what he's done and praise him for who he is. There's a third thing. Thank him for both. Develop a heart of thanksgiving. Develop a heart of gratitude. Give God credit for what he's done and who he is and pour out unhesitating gratitude. That's a life-changing pattern of praise. And it gives God glory. It glorifies him when you acknowledge what he's done. That's to his glory and who he is. Well, maybe two more. We glorify God by prayer. We glorify God by prayer. Every time you pray, you glorify God. Now, remember now, this is why you live. This is the primary issue in your life. You are to do everything to the glory of God. It's not mystical. It's not some secretive thing. It's very, very clear and very practical. You are to glorify God, and you will glorify God through prayer. John 14, most interesting. John 14, 13, and 14, a lot of passages on prayer, but this one's at the heart of it. John 14, 13, whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified. Wow. I'm going to hear your prayers, that the Father may be glorified. What does he mean by that? That the, that the Father can put himself on display. You pray for someone to be saved, and they're saved, and God is put on display. You pray for someone who's ill. Uh, to be given comfort and strength through their illness and the triumphant spirit and anticipation that if they go, they're going to go into the presence of Jesus Christ. And God answers your prayer and they're made strong and triumphant even in their dying. And you hear God answer the prayer. You pray for God to bring you to the master's college or to bring the right person into your life for a life partner. Or you, you pray for all kinds of things. And, and as those things unfold in the plan of God, your initial response is, Thank you, Lord. I glorify you. I honor you. You see, the reason God wants to answer your prayer, listen, is not to give you what you want, but to put himself on display. That's the issue. It's really incidental what you want, because when you get into heaven, you're going to be perfect and have everything you need. But what God wants to do is put himself on display so you can practice praising him now since you're going to spend eternity doing it. God reveals himself in answered prayer. I had a friend who came to me a number of years ago at the church. His name was Frank, and he said... Uh, 
First time I met him, he said, John, I, I keep a book of all my prayer requests and I write them all down and uh, I'd like to know if I could pray for you on some things. He said, I have a page here for John MacArthur. Could you just take 15 minutes and give me a long list? So I, I just talked to him and he wrote down all these prayer requests. Specifics. And it was a, it was a sort of a spiral notebook, pretty thick. Uh, Maybe a month or two later, I can't remember exactly, he came back to me and he said, By the way, John, I've been praying every day for these things. And here in the other column, I write how God answered. Could you, could you give me all the answers to what God's done in response to all these prayers? And he wrote all that down. I went to his house one time and found that he was working on book number 13. He had 13 books filled with prayers and answers. Now, if you would say to him, um, do you think God answers prayer? Oh, certainly. What kind of prayer would you like to see? i got volume four here. It's got six healings here and four of these and ten of these. You know what? Here's a man who had a record of God putting himself on display, right? That's why we pray. Not just to get what we want, not just to solve our problems, but to let God demonstrate his power and his love and his compassion and his mercy and his will and his purposes. That's why you pray. We glorify God by proclaiming the Word. We glorify God by proclaiming the Word. Second Thessalonians 3.1. I'll just comment on it. Finally, brethren, pray for us that the Word of the Lord may spread rapidly and be glorified. Boy, when you preach the Word, that's why I love preaching and teaching. When you preach the Word, you're giving glory to God because you're putting His Word out there. The Word of the Lord and thus the Lord Himself is glorified when the truth is preached when the truth is spoken, when the truth is received. Just a tremendous thing. You glorify God every time you speak the truth. You glorify God next every time you lead someone to Christ. Every time you lead someone to Christ, you glorify God. In 2 Corinthians 4, 15, Paul says, I do all things for your sake, that is to bring you the gospel, and this, that the grace which is spreading to more and more people may cause the giving of thanks to abound to the glory of God. You know what he's saying? Every time you lead someone to Christ, you add a person to the hallelujah chorus. Every time you lead someone to Christ, somebody else can thank him and that gives him glory. You double your capacity. Alone I can give God glory. If I lead someone to Christ, there are two of us giving him glory. Every time you lead someone to Christ... You give more glory to God. You just multiply it. That's what Paul is saying. It's spreading to more and more people so that the thanks that they have in their hearts for salvation may superabound to the glory of God. Well, there's a lot more could be said. A lot more things in Scripture talk about glorifying God. But let's go back to where we started. Spiritual growth is a process, according to 2 Corinthians 3.18, of glorifying God, climbing that ladder, more and more glorifying God, more and more. You can measure spiritual growth by how much we glorify God. That's the measure of spiritual growth. Are you moving, according to that verse, 2 Corinthians 3.18, from one level of glory to the next level of glory to the next level of glory? As you gaze at the glory of the Lord, as you focus on the glory of the Lord, it says in that verse, as you look at the glory of God and make it the focus of your life, as you live to glorify Him, He'll move you up that ladder of ever-increasing capacity to glorify Him. And that, says that verse, is the work of the Holy Spirit. Set your life where David did. I've set the Lord always before me. 
do everything to aim at glorifying him and you'll move up that ladder of glory to glory to glory ever more pleasing to God. Well, let's bow in prayer.